I we'll have to begin by saying, Mary, I wish that you wouldn't have given me such a generous and kind introduction. I mean, I really wish you wouldn't because usually when you're gone and I'm here, I get a cheap laugh out of saying something like, and it's usually guiltless, about me being much taller than you, and so it's easy for you all to notice that Mary's not here. But now that you're here and you gave me a nice, I feel a little bit of guilt, so thanks for nothing. <laughs> thanks for nothing. Well, we are gonna pick up the story of David tonight. And for those of you who've been traveling along, you know that we've been following uh, some significant events in David's life. Can anybody give me one of the events that uh, Pastor Mary's preached on so far? Goliath, another one. Anointing at the beginning, David's anointing with Goliath. A couple weeks ago, uh, Mary preached on this band of folks, four to 600 people who sort of came around David and provided him companionship. And then last week, we learned about Abigail. And the one word, beauty. Remember, beauty coming out the middle of... And so we pick up there, and we've passed over a couple things between then and now, but we'll cover some of those. And we're going to go back to previous sermons, so I need you to be tracking with me. But tonight, we're going to start on page 238. Page 238, 1 Samuel 30. So in the in-between time, David and his band of followers, 600 or so at this time, left camp, left all the women and children and all the, the goods that they had accumulated over a long period or a period of time, and they had offered to fight with the Philistines. And so they went off, and while they have, were gone, we find out that bad things have happened. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 30. So follow along with me. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negeb and on Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag, burned it down, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed none of them, but carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned down, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. So pause there just a minute. You have to have some sense of what is taking place here. These verses are easy to sort of run past and without really having appreciation of what's been lost. David and this men, this group of, of close brotherhood who've been working together and caring for one another, have survived. And God has provided. And they have seen God's hand in a variety of ways. And so now they come back and everything they had was gone. So before we can move on, we have to try to enter into the space that they might have been in, where they were at emotionally, the sense, the intense grief, the intense loss that they would have been experiencing. Continuing on, verse 6. David was in great danger, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in spirit for their sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Pause there. The, the commentators point out here the, the difference, and throughout the book of Samuel, we see the difference between Saul and David. Just a couple chapters earlier, we skipped over this. Saul was in a tight spot. He was wondering what to do. And rather than strengthen himself in the Lord, he went 
to the witch in Endor, a story you may be familiar with. He wanted to consult the spirit. He wanted to speak with Samuel to know what to do. And so we see this sharp contrast when David is faced with trouble. He seeks God. He finds strength in God. Verse 7, David said to the priest Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. For those of you who may not know, an ephod is a uh, an article of clothing, an ornate article of clothing without any sleeves, often associated with seeking God, often worn by a priest, but on a few other occasions worn by someone else, but always, almost always out of a de- sincere desire to seek and to hear from God. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, God answered him, pursue for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. So David set out, he and the 600 men who were with him. They came to the brook Basur, where those stayed were left behind. But David went on with pursuit, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind, too exhausted to cross the brook Basur. In the open country, they found an Egyptian and brought him to David. They gave him bread and he ate it. They gave him water to drink. They also gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins. Stop there. Can anybody remember where this group might have picked up fig cakes and raisins? Anybody remember? The last story, Abigail, after finding out that her husband Nabal had sent David packing and said, you're not getting any of my stuff, Abigail rushes to greet David and the men and says, oh, no, 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 don't, my husband, he's a fool. You will give you what you've asked for. And she gives them. God provides food for David and his men, including figs and raisins. So we see how God's provision for David and his men gets passed on in kindness and generosity to the Egyptian. Picking up there, when he had eaten, his spirit revived. The text actually says he came back to life. Life came back into him. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong? Where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. My master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. Do you think it's a little strange that this 600 men who are following David, do you remember how they were described in chapter 22? If you want to flip back there, chapter 22, verse 2. Everyone who was in this, these are the people who are described with, to be with David. This is the, the group he's attracted Everyone who's in distress and everyone who's in debt and everyone who is discontented gathered to him. It's sort of the who's who of misfits. You've got a big debt. You've been alienated by your friends. You're, you're, you've been outcast. Come on, there's room for one more. So now this group of people who have all been discarded, they've been alienated in some way, comes across another person. I would, I would think of anyone who's going to be kind to them is this group of 600. It's like, here's another one of us, 601. We've got room for you. Come on. So they stopped for him. We had made a raid on the Negeb of the Cherethites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag down. David said to him, Will you take me down to this raiding party? He said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. When he had taken him down, they were spread out all over the ground, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great amount of spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. 
Not one of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back everything. David also captured all the flocks and herds which were driven ahead of the other cattle. And people said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. They went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. When David drew near to the people, he saluted them. Then all the corrupt and worthless fellows among the men who had gone out with David said, because they had not they did not go with us. We will not give them any of the spoil that we now have recovered, except that each man may take his wife and children and leave. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and handed, us, handed over to us the raiding party that attacked us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For the share of the one who goes down into the battle shall be the same as the share of the one who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. From that day forward, he made it a statue and an ordinance for Israel. It continues to the present day. This is the word of the Lord. When I was uh, young, I was often be in the kitchen with my mom. And uh, if you've ever baked anything, you know that when you begin baking, you are just bound to find an ingredient that's not in the house. And so my mom, who would be cooking, would say to me when I was a young, maybe six or seven, a young boy, I was the youngest in our family, so I'd be the one who was home. She'd say, Aaron, why don't you go to Lucy's house, our 90-year-old neighbor who lived two doors down, why don't you go to Lucy's house and pick up a cup of sugar? Why don't you go to Lucy's house and get an egg? Whatever it might be on that particular day. And so I'd say, oh, okay, I can do that. And so I would say, go get an egg, go get an egg. And I'd go out the front door, and I'd go out to the street, and I'd go out our sidewalk, out to the street, and I'd Oh, look, a bird. (laughs) But don't forget an egg. Walking along, like, hey, he's riding his bike. I think I'm going to go. No, I got to go. I got to go get something. Okay. Uh, Going to Lucy's house. Going to, and I would almost get to Lucy's house. And I, I am embarrassed to tell you how many times I would get to the front door of Lucy Wellman's home and not have any idea what my mom had sent me for. And so I would walk all the way back, see the bike, see the bird, come all the way back over here, and I would get back to my house, and I would be so embarrassed to say to my mom, Mom, what, what did you tell me to go get? It was so clear in my mind when I was here just a few minutes ago. And she said, Aaron, you, we need to get an egg. Can you get an egg? And so I'd go all the way back, and I'd go this time and remember. And sometimes my mom would actually write it down just to be sure. I couldn't necessarily read, but Lucy could. (laughs) And we would get the ingredient. Anytime that I think of uh, human nature, of how easy it is to forget things, I think of that story. And in the story that we read today, we hear another example of how easy it is to forget. And we see how easy it is to forget in the the 400 men who are following David. And after everything that's happened, everything that's transpired, they come in through David's leadership and they have everything that was lost has been recovered. All of their family members are still healthy and well. The people who they thought for sure would have died and had shed many tears and had wondered if they would ever see them again 
are alive. And all the possessions, all the things that they had accumulated over the time of being with David, they're still there. Nothing we read was missing. And so they go and they gather and they find all of these things and they're so excited and they're almost, you can almost hear them being intoxicated with how good of news. It's like winning the lottery and somebody saying, hey, would you buy me an iPod? You'd be like, sure, you can have everything you want. I've got money. Right, there was such good news. And so they say, this is all of David's spoil. It's all David's. But you notice what happens from the, the exhilaration, the excitement of winning, of having everything back, of finding out the good news that this is David's spoil in just the short walk of moving back and bringing the things back and getting back to the people, how much has changed? You see, when they're over there, just after having secured everything back, finding out that everyone's okay, they confidently say, they boldly say, this is David's spoil. But their memories are about as long as mine But because from the time at which they won all that spoil and the, the time that they returned back at the Brook Basur to the 200 who had stayed back behind, everything's changed. It seems to me that they had forgotten between that point and this point who they were. You see, in chapter 22, we, we find out that these are a bunch of people who were discontent and they had been discarded and they were in deep debt. They had nothing. They had no one. And so they go and seek David out, out in the wilderness, and they find a sense of community and a sense of of, of sharing life together with David and others. And over time, they're very successful. God blesses them, and so their possessions grow and grow, and their relationship seems to deepen and grow. They have so much to be thankful for. These people who had gone from having nothing to all of a sudden having so much. But between that point and this point over here, all of a sudden they say when it comes to time to distribute the goods, the 200 who stay behind don't get anything. It's gone from this is David's spoil, he decides to actually we're going to be in charge, we're going to figure out how to distribute it and we have decided, some of us have been over here talking, that the best way to probably handle this is uh, those of us who went uh, get to share it. I mean, you know the sort of logic of uh, you snooze, you lose, the early bird gets the worm, no pain, no gain. You can pick your bumper sticker phrase. They all apply here. We, we get to share the spoil. Not them, not them, we do. You see that God had provided so generously. God had provided in such extraordinary abundance, and yet it still wasn't good enough. Having all their family members there, not good enough. Having all their possessions returned to them, that's not quite good enough. Now all of a sudden, we want it all and we want a bigger share because we deserve it. We deserve it, they say. I wonder if any of us have ever spoken those words. We, we deserve it. That we've looked around at the things that we have and say, you know, I'm entitled to this. I deserve this. Sometimes this is just in little things. It's, it's walking out of the dining hall and say, you know, I can take a few bagels with me. I mean, I've paid for these, haven't I? I mean, do you know what they're charging around here for tuition? I bought more than just a couple bagels, folks. I bought the whole bagel shop. So if I want to leave with a couple extra bagels, I don't think anybody's going to mind. Or if you perhaps moved off campus, it's no longer the dining hall. It's, 
I, I don't think I used my full allotment of toilet paper during my time here in the residence hall. <laughs> and so I'm just going to take some with me out to my off-campus home because I've paid for this. I deserve this. And a couple rolls, do you have any idea how much this stuff actually costs? Don't be ridiculous. I am sure they have, you know, fuddled away some of my tuition dollars inefficiently. I deserve this. They're going to thank me later. They owe me for this. Right? So sometimes this attitude of I deserve it, we deserve it, shows up in, in we may say, relatively small things. But uh, Eugene Peterson in his book talks about the cost of having this sort of thinking and the way that it shapes us. He writes, but we live in an age that has replaced compassion with sentiment. We live in an age, he seemed here to say, in which we've, we've lost a sense of how much things cost, the value of things, and our response to them. He goes on, sentiment is a feeling disconnected from relationship. Sentiment is a spilled compassion. It looks like concern. It could develop into compassion, but it never does. Sentiment is the patriotic catch in your throat as the flag goes by, a feeling that never gets connected with the patriotic honesty of paying your income tax. Sentiment is the tears that flow in a sad movie, tears that never get connected with, the, with visiting your, dead, your dying friend. We feel sorry for people. We lament the pain and suffering in the world, but having felt the internal emotions of pity, wept a few requisite tears of sorrow, and sent off $10 to a charitable appeal, we've exhausted our capacity for care. There becomes this disconnect. And so being disconnected in small things can easily turn into big things. And so it's pretty easy to say, I deserve top-rate health care. And if that means that other people don't have any health care at all, well, that's just sort of probably their lot in life. They probably should have worked harder. They should have come along with the rest of us who went out and risked our lives. Or it may be, I deserve all of the very best foods available. Whether they're in season or out of season, it really doesn't matter. I deserve these things. I'm able to pay the full price and this sort of, sort of supply and demand thing. I get it. It's mine. I deserve it. And you can't tell me not. And then we just come out of Unlearn Week. Why does racism exist? Because there's any group of people who believes that they deserve things more than someone else does. They take power and they take privilege and they leverage them. They leverage those things in order to keep their position, to keep their power. And if that means that some other people have to pay the price, have some consequences, well, I can just distance myself from that and just, they probably deserve it. And so that relationship gets separate. I don't connect with those people and so we're able to harbor prejudices. We're, our, we're able to harbor ill will. We're able to harbor more of the, our share of possessions, more of our connection to power and influence. Why? Because we somehow deserve it. And so Peterson points out how small things, or what we might consider small things, so easily turn into things that war at our souls, things that tear us down 
from the inside. We, we dehumanize people around us and we no longer see them as brothers and sisters in Christ. We no longer see them as people made in the image of God. This is what happens when we forget who we are. This is what happens when we forget where we've come from. This is what happens when we begin to develop an attitude that says, I deserve this or we deserve this, whoever the we is. So we need to go back to the text to see how, do we, how does God recover in us a sense of identity? How do we see God at work here at a passage in which it seems so easy and it seems so easy in our own lives to forget, to forget who we are, to forget what we've done, to forget what God has done for us? Well, flip back, open your Bibles with me to page, back to 238 to chapter 30. And if you want a blueprint, you want to have a sense of what it takes to to regain an understanding of how generous God is, that it's not about what we deserve, but what's an understanding of when we understand who we are, we have a fuller appreciation for what God has done and what God continues to do. So let's just look in this particular passage. First we see that in in verse 6, that God strengthens David. When David faces trouble, when David is overwhelmed, when David is being attacked, he knows one place to turn. And he turns to God and says, God, in you and in you alone, I find my strength, I find my identity, I find my security. I need you. Then in the very next verse, we find that that God does something absolutely amazing, something that most of us dream of. David asks God a question. Shall I pursue this man? Should I go after this people who have done this to us? And God answers him. God answers him. And he doesn't just answer him. He answers him in two Hebrew infinitive absolutes. This is sort of the way to say, this is the way it's going to be. Book it. This is what's going to happen. You have no reason to doubt. And God says to him, for for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. God says to David, it's going to happen. I give you my word. And then verse 11, God not only makes a promise, God provides. God makes the promise that he's going to lead them, that they should pursue him, and then all of a sudden, they just so happen to run across an Egyptian boy who's been discarded by the fleeing Amalekites because he's sick and he can't keep up. And this band of forgotten, discarded people stop and they provide. How easily it could have been for them to just rush on past and say, we are in a really big hurry. Wish that we had time, but we, and to be, to be off. And yet God stops them. God uses them to care for this dying Egyptian boy. And through caring for this dying Egyptian boy, God provides the solution. God provides the answer they were seeking. God provides a means by which David and the men can find the hiding Amalekites. And then when David and the men find the Amalekites, they're having such a good old time. Could you imagine after having the the biggest success, the biggest win of your military career, and then heading on back and being like, they are never going to find us back here. We better celebrate. Open all the wine. Let's cook all the food. We're going to have a great time. We'll figure out what to do later. And so there they are, drinking and dancing and eating when God directs David and the group to them. 
And then we find out that not just a, they didn't lose a few things. We find out that there was not one thing missing. There was not one person missing. There was not one person who'd been killed. There was not one animal that was missing. God had providentially cared for this group of people and he had kept his promise. He said, surely you will find them. Surely you will overtake them. And God provides. And because God is the one who is acting all along the way, because God is the one who's providing, leading David, strengthening David, providing answers to his questions, doesn't it seem then to make sense that everything that they have belongs to God? That, That God would be the one to decide how these things should be divided? And so that's where David steps in. When the, those who are creating some trouble, those who are speaking up and saying, no, 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 we're not dividing it evenly. We're not giving those 200 bums who stayed back, those, those lazy ones, we know who they are. We're not giving them one thing. David steps in and says, actually, that's not the way it's going to go. What's actually going to happen is we're going to take everything that God's provided, everything that God's given us, and we're going to divide it evenly. Whether you went or you didn't go. You want to know why? Because it's God's. We're going to divide it evenly because everything that we have is God's. And so those who stayed and those who went are all going to get the same share. And here we see God's abundance. We see God's generosity. We see God's love and care for David and this group of people who've been living out in the wilderness, who've been living on their own, being cared for so well in ways that they could have, I'm sure, never anticipated. And you know something? We serve a God who still provides in remarkable and generous ways. Even though we are a people who want to claim what we deserve, that we're a people that wants to say that we're entitled, that because of how good we are, that God has to do these things. No. No, God knows who we are. We know who we are. And in spite of those things, God continues to provide today in really amazing and remarkable ways. Right? These things aren't abstract. They're tangible ways in which God cares for us. Ross began by saying, just take just a minute to be quiet and still and be specific to how God has cared for you. And one of the great parts of my job is I get to hear stories from all of you. I get to hear stories of how God is generously provided for you and for your fellow students on campus. There's a, just recently I came across a student who's been battling a health ailment for three years that has caused him tremendous pain that has led him to shed many tears. His family's been stretched financially. It's been an embarrassing ailment that he wanted to keep quiet from anyone else because he didn't want anyone to know. Because if anyone knew what he was going through, the things that his body was doing and the things that this was caught, he would be so embarrassed and wouldn't be able to come back. And yet after three years, seeking after God, God strengthening him, God providing for him to have surgery this summer to free him from it. And now be walking on our campus and most people see him and think, oh, hey, there's him again not having any idea that his life has gone from one of pain and suffering and shame and that God, through his just immeasurable generosity, has provided for this young man. And now he's living a full and abundant life. 
So I see the way that God provides through health. I also see ways in which God provides for members of our community financially. There was a, an international student who I've uh, got to know over the last couple years and over the course of the summer began to talk to me and said, uh, Aaron, I'm so, I just want you to know that it doesn't look like I'll, like I'll be coming back this fall. Through a variety of circumstances, I haven't been able to come up with the tuition, I haven't been able to, to stay up with my bill and so uh, I'll likely be going back but I wanted you to know and I, I wondered if you would join me in praying that God would provide. I said to this young man, absolutely. And so in my office, and I know there were many others across campus, we just prayed for this young man and prayed that in some way that God would provide. He had sensed that God had called him to Calvin College. He believed that he was here for a purpose. And so he just said, God, I trust you, and I'm seeking after you. Well, it got down to 24 hours before the deadline, 24 hours before he had to be out of the country or he could be in trouble with, with immigration. And he didn't know exactly what he was going to do, but a few days earlier, a friend had said, listen, if you, if you really believe that God's called you to here, then you need to let some, a few people know that in order for you to stay, you need to raise some funds. And so he began emailing a few people and talking to a few people and said, hey, this is the situation. If, if you feel called to, to give, then give, but if you don't, it's completely in your hands. This is God's, this is God's thing. And so over the course of a couple of days, some money came in. Uh, a, percentage of the, a small percentage of the funds came in and he was grateful for that, but there was still a big gap. And then 24 hours, less than 24 hours before he was going to have to leave the campus, uh, he got a call from somebody he had met six months, or six months earlier at a random, seemingly random dinner, but nothing's random with God. He shared a dinner with somebody at this group of uh, table of eight at the Prince Conference Center and over the course of that evening he got to know a, an older gentleman and this older gentleman through a variety of circumstances found out that he was in a tight financial situation that if he didn't come up with the money he was going to have to go home. Well, 24 hours before this gentleman called this student and said, can you, I, I, can you meet me at a Calvin College office in 20 minutes? And the student said, sure, wherever you want to go. He goes and meets with Joe Cooper, who many of you know, and Joe works in our admissions office here with international students, and he, he said, well, just tell me, what, what does he owe? He said, okay. Then they went to the financial person and said, I want to know everything that's gonna, this is going to cost. He said, okay. After an hour or so, he left, and he said, I'll call you tomorrow. The student went to bed that night having no idea what was going to happen, wondering if this would be the way that God would provide or wondering if he was going to need to go home and start up his life back in his hometown. Two o'clock that next day, his cell phone rings, and Joe Cooper had just received a call and said, she said, do you want to go to the bookstore and buy all your books? And he kind of stopped, and he said, Are, can I, am I going to be a student here? Did, did the money come in? And Joe, with tears in her eyes, said, yeah, it came in. Now you want to know just how generous our God is? That man who had met this young man one time, six months earlier, wrote a check for $20,000. $20,000. And this young man who had been on his knees with family and friends, believing that the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills could provide for him if he chose. If he just said the word, the money would be available. And he's here, taking classes, walking around. I saw him that, that afternoon, and he had two huge book, two bags from the campus store full of books and the smile that would barely fit on his face. 
And I thought, we serve a God who provides. There's one last story. You know, these are things easy to talk about for other people, but I, Ross, when you said that, how has God blessed me, I had something that came quick to mind, and I immediately had a lump in my throat. See, for uh, my wife and I have had, Betsy have had a six-year-old son, Quincy, and a four-year-old daughter, Annie, and we had felt called to expand our family, but didn't know how that was going to be, and so we started to fill out paperwork for adoption. And we believed that God was calling us to adopt, and we waited, we filled out the paperwork, and we waited, and we prayed, we waited, and we prayed, and it took a long time, longer than we could ever imagine. And then one Thursday afternoon, I got a call in my office. Mary wasn't far. And the adoption agency called and said, there's a baby boy born yesterday, June 1, and he needs to go home tomorrow morning by 11, and you've been picked. Are you ready to have a baby boy in your home? I said, I think that we are, but I sure better not, I, I don't think I should make this decision without first talking to my wife. Can I have time to call her? <laughs> this is free marriage advice for anyone. <laughs> Do not accept a child to live in your home permanently without first speaking with your spouse. <laughs> yes. There he is. So that's Annie and Quincy and Jackson. And so when we talk about God's generosity, when we talk about God providing, we're not talking about a God out there. We're talking about a God who provides for us. And so just before I left, I said goodbye to Jackson. He gives me a huge smile. And I look at that little boy and think, God provides in ways beyond that we could ever imagine. And it's not a sort of abstract out there ways. It's tangible ways in which we see it in our day-to-day lives. But we need to be renewed we need to see it. We need to be reminded of it because we have short memories because from there to there, we can forget. And so we need God's word to read stories to see ways in which God's provided us there. We need stories from brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to have our eyes open, the scales to fall off so we can see ways in which God's providing for us. We need pictures like that in our homes because I can't see him or see a picture of Jackson and not think, God, you are a God who provides generously. And tonight, we get to see one more way. We get to come to the table. We get to come to communion. We get to come to the bread and the wine that Jesus provided for us. You see, Jesus, like David, was anointed. Jesus, like David, had a small band of of followers who were discarded, were alienated, were were told that they weren't worth very much, and they followed, followed Jesus out in the desert. You see, in this story, we see how David had access to so much wealth, and he, rather than hoarding it for himself, chose to give it away. And so we see at the table that Jesus, who had access to all power, all authority in heaven and on earth, he didn't choose those things to hoard them for himself. No, he, he willingly went to the cross. He willingly gave so that you and I, so that we would have life. No human being has ever done anything more generous, more extravagant than what Jesus Christ did at the cross. And on the the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. and He said, this is my body given for you. Then he took a cup. He said, this blood, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and that you drink this cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are ways in which we are reminded of God's goodness. These are ways in which we are reminded of God's generosity towards us. And they are tangible and they are specific. We please join me in prayer. With joy, we praise you, gracious God, for you created heaven and earth, made us in your image and kept covenant with us, even when we fell into sin. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through his victory over the grave, we are set free from the bounds of sin and the fear of death to share the glorious freedom of the children of God. In his rising to life, you promise eternal life to all who believe in him. We praise you that as we break bread in faith, we shall know the risen Christ among us. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ that we may be one with all who share this feast. Amen. And will you now recite with me words of faith from the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come forward and to receive the bread and the juice. We're going to have... Uh, elders from Plymouth Heights and members of our staff up here with both a cup and a piece of bread. And what you can do is tear off a large, we serve a generous God, you don't need to take a small piece, take a large piece, that you will then take the bread and dip it into the juice. And as you do, you'll hear the words, the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And then you're able to take the elements where you stand. If you would prefer not Uh, because you're not a communicant member in your local congregation and so you don't want to come forward to receive the elements, you may come forward for a blessing. Just put your hands across uh, your chest like this and those, the person who has the elements will give you a blessing instead. So you may come forward for that. Uh, Pastor Mary will have gluten-free bread and so if that's something for you, uh, come and find her. And uh, in terms of keeping things orderly, what we want you to do is come up row by row down these aisle, this aisle here and this aisle here. Come forward there and then you can either go back to your seat by going down the middle or along around the outside. Okay, so right here, forward, and those of you in the back just uh, come in as it, as you, uh, when it's your turn. I think that's it. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, the Lord has prepared his table for all who love him and all who seek him alone for their salvation. All who are truly sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and who desire to live in obedience to him, are welcome. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. 
I'd invite the elders to come forward now and others who will be serving.